Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 300. How have we done 300? This is madness. Um, this week's podcast is with the amazing uh, Paul Fagg, who has got a new film out called Last Christmas, which, as you'll hear, I really enjoyed. Particularly one part of one of the actor's b- bodies. That's a curious tease to, to go into it, right? Um, first of all, um, but he's also the director of B- Bridesmaids, um, A Simple Favour, so many good films. You can rule them off for day. He, he directed multiple episodes of The American Office, Arrested Development. He's the creator and director of Freaks and Geeks. So much good stuff. Um, so I was really excited to get to, to talk to Paul. It's a little bit of a short episode this week, but, um, you know, I was excited about the opportunity. I know there's always, as you know, it's always a conflict when it's a press junket that I have to go, right, am I going to get enough time to get a distraction pieces style interview or is it going to be not enough time and I should pass on it and believe me I pass on a lot of them but the opportunity to sit down with someone like Paul was a massive one um but if you do find it frustrating that this is a short one fear not because last week I had a bonus episode with James Mangold um another amazing director the director of Le Mans 66 Logan Walk the Line Copland Identity Girl Interrupted so many good things so yeah tons of exciting people there's something i want to tell you about quickly and address beforehand in this one because it's a small thing that we discuss at the end and sometimes in these podcasts after a topic i then want to clarify in case something gets misinterpreted that's not the case on this one everything that's said i think is paul is wonderfully articulate on it i think i just about got to get my words out in the right order but it got me thinking about something that i wanted to quickly discuss in the beginning and as it's a shorter episode i thought we'd have time as a lot of you know i do most of the longer talking at the end but i thought i'd sling this in the beginning um there's a small part at the end of this podcast where we talk about um being an ally and we get onto that subject because of bridesmaids because paul was the guy (laughs) involved in a film that was hugely important for for women for female-led films films with divert a diverse range of female characters not simply here's a strong female lead here's a variety of women as as does last christmas here's here's flawed women here's funny women here's vulgar women here's classy women here's angry women here's every kind of um amazing woman so we discussed the topic of being an ally and i mention a lot on the podcast about the lack of nuance that um is a big problem of social media and we touch upon it in this with emojis, actually. But the, the lack of nuance is a big problem in the modern world, I feel. And something I wanted to quickly talk about at the start is the difference between being an ally and white saviorism or, or, or white knighting. Interestingly, the white in one is literal and in the other is figurative. But um, yeah, so white saviorism is something that's coming up a lot and being discussed a lot these days. And I feel it's a valid thing. Some of you may be cringing, going, oh, it's not real. I, I think it is, and I think it's an issue. White saviorism is when we've got these largely white middle-class people at times coming in and with the best of intentions, I might add, most of the time with the best of intentions, coming in and saving these poor um, people from different backgrounds 
to them. It's been quite a thing over the years. I'm not going to start n- naming historical events that looking back now scream of white saviorism, but you know, it's an issue because similarly white knighting when men are being the ones to kind of be there and save save the day for these women and and help them achieve their their tasks um but being the savior in that situation or the hero the difference with that and being an ally is being an ally you're you're backing up you're being an extra voice in the fight rather than trying to be the hero and as i touch upon in this killer mike explained this 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 to me in our episode years ago because i was saying to him at the time i felt quite uncomfortable because i really wanted to be really vocal about what was going on with essentially young black men in america and and the police at that time but it felt kind of tough talking about it from a place of of white privilege again i'm not i don't come from a privileged background but white privilege isn't about privilege background it's about the natural um advantages that that you have as a white person again it's real it's not to say that your life's easy it's not to say that you've it's a walk in the park but it's a real thing so please just let's not argue about that here and now that's what that's not what i'm talking about but 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 what mike said is for these changes to be made we need to be all fighting together and an example in that situation is there's certain people uh racists that by the very nature of their prejudice may not be able to be convinced by people of color or different ethnicities they may need their old school friend to go mate that's fucking dumb as 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 the starting point to then go and be open to hearing lectures and speeches from the amazing people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds that that are going on all the time all over the world at the moment um and similarly Paul on um, on Bridesmaids. Obviously, he's the director, man. But what I loved about that was I didn't really clock him as the director. He didn't, you know, it wasn't shouted about. What was quite rightfully shouted about was the amazing cast of women and writers and team in general, producers, all sorts on that film that just absolutely smashed it and knocked it out of the park and made the film not about that. Just, it's a great film and... I do think it it, it it was really important for 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 pushing the industry in the right direction there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of I wanted to touch upon that as as allies rather than than white saving. It's why I mean I get asked all the time what in acting now I've moved into acting. What's your dream role? And I generally say I don't have one because the dream role is often the thing that that comes about that you'd never heard of and then you read it and it's amazing and it's your absolute dream but if i was pushed on it john brown is is my dream role because john brown was an abolitionist in 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 the 1800s and he was a white man that felt slavery was wrong and he's not the hero of of slavery being overthrown but he was an ally and he was ally passionate enough to go around killing slave masters to 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 feel that the the battle and again this i'm not trying to get into any, any arguments here the battle against how wrong slavery was meant enough to him that he felt it had peaceful protest was not was no longer enough and he killed some horrible people and i think he's uh, uh yeah he was he advocated the use of armed 
insurrection to overthrow the institution of uh, of slavery in the United States. So yeah, if if there was ever a dream role, it'd be to play him in a bigger story. You know, when when someone's doing one of these huge, amazing, epic films, damn, to get to be that small part in uh, in in a far bigger story. So that's yeah. I just wanted to touch upon that the difference, and it goes from f- feminism to all sorts of re- representation in film, in work, in all sorts of areas that you can be an ally without white knighting or being a white uh, saviour. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're going to laugh when we get to that bit because it's literally a minute-long p- bit of a podcast that doesn't touch upon anything like that for the rest of it. But I wanted to get that clear. Um, let's jump into it. Obviously, Last Christmas is out now, and as you'll hear, I really enjoyed it. Um, and you'll also hear I went in, despite being a fan of the director, the writer, all of the cast, I still went in sceptical, hoping to to mildly enjoy it, um, to save any awkwardness in this interview, and I ended up really enjoying it. So yeah, this is episode 300 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. Oh, I should, should, should tell you next week's guest before we get into it. Um, let me have a quick look on my list. I think I know who's next week, but it's always good to check. Yes, next week is the man, the myth, the legend, Neil Gaiman. Yeah exciting isn't it um anyway enjoy this is episode 300 of the distraction pieces podcast with the wonderful paul fag Right, I'm joined today by Paul Fake. How are you, sir? I'm good, Pip. How are you? I'm good. And you've been doing a lot of, of press today, but a lot of it hasn't been face-to-face. So I'm, exactly. I'm excited to get face-to-face with you. Do the you prefer human that? human connection. Yes, I do. I do. I like to be able to look into somebody's eyes. It <laughs> makes a massive difference, doesn't it? I've got... I also act, and I've got a, a, a film out at the moment, and I'm, all the press I've been getting in for it, they keep saying, because I live out of London, they keep saying, oh, you can do it over the phone. It's like, right. no. If I'm doing it, I want to be in the room so we can get that genuine I agree. feel of it all. Well, it's, all it, it's, hard, it's so hard to kind of have a conversation when you can't kind of read, I don't know, read people's body language. and yeah. I, it, it's phones, I, I, My least favorite thing to do is talking on a telephone. I couldn't agree more, yeah. Oh, it's just there's, there's so much you can't convey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't come across. And weirdly, the... The the seemingly trite invention of emojis yeah. has really helped our communication. I think because you can convey some of the stuff that you can't convey in just text. I 100 percent agree with you. Stupid I'm a, as I'm, it sounds, I'm an emoji nut. Yeah. I, I love it. And I've seen people like, oh, guys, don't use emojis. I'm sorry, I do. I like it. <laughs> Completely agree. So uh, I need to to start off 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 by saying that when the opportunity came to have a chat with you, I jumped it because I love. Bridesmaids, A Simple oh, Favour, The you. Heat, Spite, The Office, Arrested Development, Freaks and Geeks, all of these things. Thank you. But then I was a little bit nervous because <laughs> Last Christmas is a Christmas film, which can be really tough. Yeah. Um, it's based around music, which can be r- r- really tough. So I went in to the screening on my own in November to watch a Christmas film, hoping that it was passable so that this wasn't an awkward conversation. Yes, exactly. And, and then I loved it. Oh, you I did? absolutely oh. adored it. I oh, thought it was hooray. fantastic. So did you have any tre- trepidation going in? Because there's, again, there's some some caveats here. There's some amazing Christmas films. Some of my favourite films are all time of Christmas films, but mm. there's some not so great ones as well. Yeah. Um, 
and the, the same with stuff that's driven by l- lyrics or music, it can yeah. be restrictive. Yeah. So did you have any any nerves when approaching the project? Well, I mean, I had done a Christmas movie 13 years ago called course, yeah. Unaccompanied Minors, or it's called Grounded here, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, uh, <laughs> it didn't do well. It did right. very poorly, actually. Uh, and it wasn't really kind of what we all wanted it to be when we started it out. It just, there was a lot of meddling from the studio and a lot of weird politics that sort of yeah. turned it from what it was, which is a little more layered, three-dimensional thing, into a bit more of just kind of a romp for kids. And so I was kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to do another Christmas movie. Yeah. But then Emma sent this script and it was so good that I was like, you know what? It's a good chance to kind of hit the reset button on it. And there's also just something, when you think about it, there's something kind of lovely about a Christmas movie that it just is a, something that has to be perennial or could be, but only if it's good. I mean, when I did Unaccompanied Minors, I thought, oh, well, clearly now this will show every year. And it doesn't. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of Christmas movies that don't, you don't see anymore. Well, that's it. I think more and more get made because of that, because of that thought of if it clicks, yeah. then we've got them residuals forever kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if it doesn't, then that's, that, that's not the case. But what I loved about this is Christmas is key to it, obviously throughout, but, it's not, I don't know, to to even have a genre of Christmas films seems silly because It's a Wonderful mm. Life is very different to Elf yeah, um, and things like that. But they're both amazing mm-hmm. in their own right. So after you'd got past the Christmas side of it, <laughs> what did you focus on wanting to, to, to bring out in this, in this film? Well, it's really, the end of the day, all you care about is making a good movie and making sure the story works. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of separate the Christmas out of it other than all the trappings of the production design and all that. Yeah. But really making sure you're telling a story that is engaging and that tracks and that has emotion. You know, I, I do comedy and it's fun to find the comedy in this, but also knowing like this is not like this is not kind of a balls out comedy. This has got a lot of very funny moments in it, but they're almost used to undercut a lot of the drama and the emotion that we have in there. And, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure I paid also tribute to this great script that Emma Thompson yeah. had co-written with Brian e. Kimmings and with her husband, Greg Wise. And, uh, yeah, but it, it's a tight, every movie's a tightrope you walk and you so easily can fall off of it. You know, somebody, this, this is an American baseball term, but somebody had said to me recently, and I thought it's so true, like making a great movie is like pitching a no hitter, which, you yeah. know, in baseball, I mean, it's like almost impossible thing to do. Yeah. Because there's so many elements and, you know, you don't do it by yourself. You're doing it with a lot of other people and yeah, it's, it's one a collaboration. Of, it's one of the exciting and scary things about film, I think, yeah. is you can, do everything that you need to do, and there can be an element out of your control. Yeah. That can even be a marketing element of oh, you know, yeah. all these different things that come after it that yeah. that can influence how that comes across. So Very much so. It's it, tough, it, right? Yeah. It, uh, there are so many pitfalls, like you say, and it's what I always call there's, a, there's usually a fatal flaw, and you don't know if it's a fatal flaw that is right in the beginning yeah. or if something happens at the end, could happen in the middle, and it's some decision or something that nobody thinks about. And you would think people would think of everything, but usually there's something – that you just miss or you screw up. And so I just live in terror of that. Yeah. You know, also when you're making a movie, you know, a lot of times things are going really well and the studio's happy with the dailies and all this. And people are always congratulating. I say, like, look, we just got to see if it adds up because I've had yeah. that happen before. You go, like, all the pieces are great. And for some reason, the math, when it comes together, just doesn't 
doesn't work. It's it's a bizarre one in that way. And uh, something that came across on the screen is that it felt like it, it felt like a, a lot of fun to make. Yeah. Um, the cast all seemed to to be really in the right zone with each other, mm. and that can be a blessing or a curse because you can be so caught up in how much fun you're all having on set and you yeah. don't know if you're thinking it's coming across well because it is or because oh everyone's lo- lovely i'm having a great time yeah oh no it's, it's very true i mean you know there's some directors i know that have a whole theory that if, if things are too happy and fun on the set then it's a disaster i don't agree with that but i have seen things where you know you finish a take and the crew's laughing and everybody's having a great time and then it turns out they're kind of the only ones that find it funny because when you string it together you go like well it's not funny anymore because Honestly, that's one of the biggest things with comedy is comedy in movies is all about pieces and how they fit together and the timing of those pieces. And so sometimes it's almost I, – I find the funniest things in my movies have been when the crew is just staring at me and like they're just like, yeah. this is not funny at all because they don't know how it's going to cut together. They don't realize we're going to juxtapose this with that. We're going to pull the time out of the middle of this. We're going to you know have one performance from one take and then glom it onto another one. And um, so it's almost it, – there is a world in which you go, like if they're just cracking up at everything you're doing on set, it might be a little sweaty on the screen. Yeah, and particularly because of the way f- films and TV are made. Obviously, it's not uh, in quick sequential order. So, yeah. so much of comedy in particular is about what came directly before that. Yeah. That that gives you that punchline or that tone or that moment. So, yeah. some of the funniest things in the history of cinema, certainly in the room on the day, would probably have been, have we got that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think we've got that. Oh, totally. And then it's, yeah. I mean, I there's a. It was funny. We were doing the movie The Heat. <clears throat> there's yeah. a really funny thing in the film where they, you know, she's chasing this guy in her car, this suspect, and then she follows him over a fence, and then they fall off the fence and like really hurt themselves. And then it was scripted in the. It said, you know, and then begins the world's slowest foot chase, and it just read so funny that everybody's like, oh, we can't wait to get there. It's going to be so much fun. And we started shooting it, and for some reason, it just everybody got really depressed because just watching it, they're going like, "This isn't fu- isn't funny." They were expecting yeah. to be like hilarious in the moment, and I remember walking away from that shoot day, going like, "Oh my god, we just completely failed! Like this is just garbage. We're gonna have to throw it out, and we're gonna end have an end of the scene." But then when you know, I send it to my editor, and he put it together, and then when we when they strung it together, I was like, this seems kind of funny. And then when we put up from an audience, it just destroyed. Yeah. And you just realize you just don't know. You just have to keep getting the pieces because you know how you're going to cut them together. And do you think experience like helps you with that in the confidence that, right, it's, yeah. it, it's going to come together it's going to work. Yeah, well, what, what it... Having that foresight, I guess. Yeah, it, it, the longer you're in the business, the more you go through things, you go like, okay, that wasn't a problem that I... So you learn to go like, okay, that's not a problem. I don't need to worry about something like that, but I do need to worry about something like this over here. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, it's a very inexact science. Yeah, um, so, and it feels like it was... I know it was a, a script that Emma had kind of worked for a long time. Yeah. And then it seemed... It seemed to take a long time and then no time at all. It seemed to all of a sudden go, right, we're making it yeah, and we start next week. Was yeah. that the kind of 
the feel on your end. Yeah, well, I, I'm always personally looking for what I call runaway freight trains. Yeah. Because I don't like when you get just stuck in a long development on a movie because yeah. then it just you develop the life out of it. And you and for me, I, I have to I have to catch an initial wave of energy because you know, making a movie, it's you're it's twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for a year, year and a half. It's all you think about, it's all you dream about, it's your obsession. And so you only have so much energy, and so you got to go into there kind of while you have that percolating inside you and then ride that wave. And so for Emma, they, this was like eight years in the making, yeah. just putting the script together. The idea was brought to her, figuring it out. Then at one point, Bryony Kimmings came in and did a draft of, of, of the script and really got it in great shape. And then Emma and Greg came back in, and they started working it harder and, and doing more stuff to it. So by the time it got to me, I it's funny, like when she just dropped it in my inbox, it was so casual the way she did it that I was kind of like, oh, I guess this is something she's just kind of like knocked out, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And, and it's so good. And you're like, how is this so good? And she's like, well, we've been working on it for eight years. It's like, oh, well, that's how it works. I love it because it is, it's, it's that thing that when it's, it's refining that energy, I guess, because when you first, particularly in, in an industry that can be so stop start, probably the first time she worked on it, it was the most exciting thing in the world. Yeah. And then there was a big gap. And then Bryony breathed that life into it. And yep. then all these different things that it's, do, do you find that at all with this kind of thing? Because again, in general, you're doing PR a project or two mm-hmm. ago, if yeah. you know what I mean. You, oh, you've no, normally totally. moved on to the next thing and you have to then go, all right, w- yeah, right. What, what, what was happened? the buzz that <laughs> thing? Yeah, what was yeah. the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's why for me, you know, getting the script just like a year and a half ago was so great because there's a clock on it because, you know, I think I read it in like June or July of last year. Wow. And immediately go like, oh, we got We want to get this in production because we want to have it out the following Christmas. But then for me, on top of that, it was like, wait, I want to shoot in London during Christmas time. I want to get all the lights and all the decorations, everything, which means we got to get into production at least, at least by the beginning of December so we can get a few weeks out there. Yeah. And that's what we did. So we really rushed to get it together. But again, there was that runaway freight train and, you know, we were de- redeveloping it as we went along and adding things and just kind of being really hard on the script. Yeah. And then off we went and I, that, you know, that's why it, it's such a pretty film is yeah. you know, we shot so much stuff on the streets of London with those decorations there. It's, it's beautiful. And it's, it's a film that I think really captures something I've not seen of London before on screen mm-hmm. is how small and intimate this huge, you know, yeah. rolling city is. Yeah. Was that an important thing or was that an in- intentional thing to get that kind of, you're in the big city, but you're not trying to get these kind of New York skyscape yeah. type things. You're getting this, these tiny little corners and areas. Yeah, no, I like that because like you say, like, you know, a, a New York story of sort of alienation and being lost in the city is a very different thing from a London one because, yeah. because New York does, like you said, it's just, its scope is so enormous and the skyscrapers are so tall and the streets are so wide, but that's what I like about London. It's very easy to get lost in this town in a different way. It's almost you can get pulled to a million different nooks and crannies and, yeah. you know, and the, the streets. I, I, it's funny. Like, when you're shooting on on uh, Regent Street, with everything cleared out, you go, like, it's it's actually kind of small. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a kind of a great way. And so we put on camera and go, like, there's something almost like, it's, I feel like I'm in a dollhouse or something here. And, and I loved it because then it just, I don't know, it kind of 
it doesn't excuse you as much as like New York. The kind of New York, you go like, yeah, sure, you just get lost in that city. But you go, yeah. London's just all around you, and it's how you kind of interact, but also how it kind of pushes you together with people in a weird way, even though it's sprawling. Yeah, and it's 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 a, a city that obviously it becomes a, a character in the film as such, but yeah. it's a unique character to get to bring in because it's because of how old it is that these big streets actually are quite small streets because they were made the buildings were built so long ago before we needed as much space and as wide and rather than a new york where it's all a grid system and it's easy to do this these like right if we need to add add something then it needs to be a little an alleyway that leads down here around the corner and then we're in this this place of beauty and i think what you captured in the film really nicely is is the beauty in exploration the mm-hmm. beauty in not going off of a sat nav? Yeah, you know I mean, if if you go if you you follow the green line from here to here, yeah, then you get there quickly. If you don't follow that line, you may get there far more beautifully or rewardingly or surprisingly. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's funny, like you know, like you say New York's a grid, but I always say you know, London's like a plate of spaghetti, you know, <laughs> yeah, and you just really get, it all go. And, and it's so easy to get lost here because yeah. every time I go, like I know exactly the direction I'm going. You veer and you you don't even realize you're turning somewhere. But that's what's so again so kind of great about it. And you the, the, the things you discover here is just yeah. and the history. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I just, I just, I love London so much because of it. You just are constantly discovering. Yeah, I love that, and and I mean, let's talk about the cast a bit because I, again, I, it seems like I'm really hanging on the fact it's a Christmas film, but oh, it feels good. even more important in a Christmas film to get the casting right. Like, yeah. it's a wonderful life is wonderful because. Jimmy Stewart is the most engaging. I could could listen to him speak yeah. forever. Yeah. Um, it's always going to have that wonder where. Whereas if you don't get that right, because of the almost saccharine sweetness of the the sprinkling of Christmas, it can mm-hmm. become cheesy. It yeah. can become. And Amelia Clark was just perfect in this this role. I felt it wasn't what I was expecting at all. I kind yeah. of came in expecting her to be the typical British kind of rose, and yeah. she's not. She's thorny, she's very thorny, and, very prickly, <laughs> and sarcastic, and aggressive, and sweary, and wonderful. Yeah. So, 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 how was it to get Amelia in that role, and how key do you feel that is to to making it have the feel it's got? I mean, she's the movie. It's really, you know, I, I had met with her about four years ago, um, just in a general meeting because I was a fan from Game of Thrones yeah. and expected to get this very serious, stoic person in in the room, <clears throat> and then walks this really hilarious. Very hilarious young woman who's just fun and funny. And I get obsessed when I see somebody that I had a preconceived notion about and they're completely the opposite. 100%. That I go, like, I need to show this to an audience. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what I loved about the script when I first read it was that this was a very challenging female lead character because yeah. she is, she's making big mistakes and she's going to frustrate the hell out of the audience yeah. for, she's you know, for a while. as hell. She's, you know. Yeah, but that's, I go like, this is so great because women don't normally get to play this on screen. Guys can do it all the time. 100%, you, yeah. You, yeah, you meet a guy and he's like, oh yeah, he's lashing out. They're like, oh, we like him, you know. I mean, who's Scrooge? That's what Scrooge is. Yeah. And yet, for some reason, women have always had, well, they have to be likable. And I'd like, well, screw that. That's not fair. Like, I want to see a three-dimensional portrayal of of a flawed woman. 100%, because that is what representation is. Yeah. It, it isn't having um, a black, amazing character or yeah. a, a female. I mean, it's having all the variations of characters. Having those ones in there as well, yeah. but having that variation is... Well, they- 
is key. Yeah, they always talk about, you know, strong female character. I'm like, I don't like strong female character because that means she's not three-dimensional or yeah. she's just kind of like perfect in one way or another. That's No, the women have been saddled with that thing for so long. and But, you know, but it goes back to why Amelia Clark was so perfect for this because, you know, you needed – Somebody who you were going to kind of stay with, you're going to root for. Didn't need you have to be. They have to be likable, but you have to go like I just kind of am invested in this person. There's something about them that I'm drawn to, and you know that's Amelia. Just those eyes just pull you in, and that face, and oh my god, she's oh, spectacular. Hundred percent. Is there anyone on screen at the moment with better acting eyebrows than Amelia Clark? <laughs> it sounds like I'm being trite, but I was genuinely no, blown away at points. Was the amount of expression which we didn't get in Game of Thrones because of the character that that yeah. she was playing so it was genuinely something as an actor coming that jumped out at me that's like wow i'm getting so much from just yeah, her face exactly you know? and you know that's who she is that's how she is in real life she's yeah. very expressive and you know I, I read there was some ridiculous review that was talking about she's got a you know to her forehead she has to learn how to control what she does with her forehead no i'm like way. what i like what the, the first of all what stupid fucking advice yeah and secondly like now that's who this person is yeah. you know it's not look it'd be one thing if you go like okay something she's faking or putting on it's like no this is you know this is how she, her she's her emotions are so there and so pure and so raw in a weird way that that it just it bubbles up from her and that's that's the kind of people we relate to on screen because you know that's what sucks us in yeah. is is their people's intensity and, and their uh you know vulnerability exactly that and it felt it felt genuine again having that 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 amount of express expression it, it felt real and i think it's a great bit of writing for the character because mm. she is the one that's kind of poo-pooing the whole idea of christmas yeah. and, and and your cheesy typical christmas film type setup which yeah. then allows us to enjoy those kind of cheesy christmas film type moments because yeah. we've, we've We've had a while of going, oh, yeah, we're not into that. Oh, no, no, yeah, that's not for us. So then when it happens, we're like, oh, it was lovely. That does, that exactly. does feel so nice. I did miss that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, That's great. And Henry Golden as well, just as soon as he comes on the screen, just so charming yeah. and so engaging. Again, it felt like perfect casting. You obviously worked with him um, on A Simple a simple favor, sorry. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, so, was he someone that you instantly, as soon as you saw this character, you thought, "Well, that's 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 Henry." Yeah, that was you know because I'm really close with Henry. We're really good buddies, and um, that's kind of who he is. And so I read it, it's like this is Henry. But when I read it and we were casting it, Crazy Rich Asians hadn't come out yet, right? And you know, I just worked with him on Simple Favor, so I knew how great he could be. But, you know, you can't say the studio. I did. I was like, hey, I just worked with this guy, Henry Golding. He's great. They're like, yeah, okay. So anyway, can, let's let's go to this star. Let's go to this yeah, star. of course. And I just kept thinking, like, if I can kind of just bide my time a little bit, I bet I can get Henry in this. And we, you know, we went after some other actors and all that. But I was always like, oh, please turn it down. Please turn it down. You know? Amazing. And they did. And then finally, when, when, when Crazy Rich opened... I remember calling the studio and going like, hey, remember that Henry guy I talked about? They're like, oh, we love him. We love him. Let's cast it. So, I, you know, I'll do anything to have the perfect cast. You yeah. know, I mean, Michelle Yeoh was another thing. Like, 
I said, I'm not doing this movie if Michelle Yeoh's not in it. Like she's amazing as well. Obviously, I can't think of anybody else who could play that role. Yeah, you know, and um, and she became a friend of mine through Henry because when we were doing Simple Favor, we were in Toronto, and uh, she was there shooting Star Trek, the TV series. And since Henry had just worked with her on Crazy Rich, she's like, "Hey, you want to come to dinner with Michelle Yeoh?" Yeah, and I'm kind of like, "Does Michelle Yeoh exist? <laughs> Is this you a know, real thing?" There's some people, yeah, you just go like, "Oh, I thought they were kind of like this mythical creature that." <laughs> that existed in the heavens or something. And then I, I meet her and she's so wonderful. And again, like Amelia, you go like, you're really funny. Like, how is it? Oh, I'm not funny. It's like, well, I hate to break it to you, but you are. Yeah. And so I just, you know, again, just leapt at getting to work with her. I love that. Cause I think it, it's like the, the passion with which you wanted these specific people in, in, in the film, it can be underplayed how important the, the relationship is between you and your cast and your cast and each other mm-hmm. um in getting a good in getting a good p- performance and getting a good final a product because it's all good to all be cheery and happy on the first yeah. day but on the third week or the fourth week when oh, you're you're overrunning and things like that it can be key to have those relationships to 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 to, to drive you through yeah well i mean i i look for that too and i really vet everybody that i work with you know if i'm going to hire somebody i'll call around to other directors or people producers who have worked with them and go like are they what what what's their story you know yeah. cuz i you know, i don't want to get saddled with somebody who's who's mean or who's you know irrational or just not pleasant to work with because like you say we're out there you know it, it's it's a marathon run you're shooting for two three four months you're there every day with people all day long and you need them to be open and you need to take chances and all that and if somebody's not going to come along for the ride and not going to trust you and not going to be open then it's just too hard you can't do it or it's not worth it as far as i'm concerned i mean so so knowing that then you get these great people and you do you know my whole job as a director is to create a safe environment where they feel they can try anything and i'm not going to go like oh that's terrible what are you doing and especially with comedy you know because you want people to experiment and uh yeah of course then you get the best out of them so so how was it working with emma thompson on this because obviously Mm. she's um one of the writers yeah and her character is the biggest character or played biggest in this, if you know what I mean. It's not yeah. the biggest role, but she plays it she, yeah. she plays it bigger than Christmas. Yeah. Yet it works. Yeah. Was there any 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 nerves there? It's like, wow, you're going big here, but it's going to work and well we played with a lot of different levels really yeah because yeah, you know we kind of started with like huge and then we pulled it way back to to nothing. Because I've done this before where you go like is that too big or not? And you don't know because when you, it's only when you start to put it together when you're like, oh, we need this big inf- infusion of, of of energy because this is kind of a larger than life character. This yeah. mother who like looms over this family. The whole reason why Amelia's character doesn't even want to go home for yeah. the first half of the movie. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I can't, I can't deal with my mother. So you know, you can't then have, <laughs> you know, you, you want to make sure that you're going to pay that off with like somebody who has really, you know, got something <laughs> about them where you go like, oh. I understand. I get it. Why you didn't want to go home? Yeah, mm-hmm. I I love it. And um, quite early on in the movie, we kind of learn or get hints of some health issues that mm-hmm. um, Amelia's character has had. Yeah, she's recently spoken of health issues that she had mm-hmm. when she, as she was younger, and it felt even more so that this was the perfect role for her at this moment and in this yeah. time because it felt the moments those things are addressed, it felt 
so real. Obviously, she had so much to draw upon, I guess. Yeah. And, and do you feel that kind of worked and was almost paying tri- tri- tribute to the things that sh- she's been through, I guess? Yeah. I mean, that you know, I didn't realize she had had that, that medical history until yeah. we had our sort of last lunch before she just, you know, decided she was going to do the movie. And that's when she told me that she went through that. And I was just so floored because, I, A, I didn't know. But then... B, I knew that this was something that connected her to it. And, yeah. you know, we get those scenes, like that scene where she's talking about, you know, her condition, medical condition, when she finally admits exactly what happened yeah. to Henry's character. It's so heartbreaking. True. And her performance is so real there. And I think it's, that's coming from a place of, you know, of a deep awareness and experience. Com- completely felt the same as I was watching that. I was like, oh, wow, we're, we're th- th- through the looking glass <laughs> yeah. for a minute here. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. Astounding. So, um, you've kind of moved from from TV to film, mm-hmm. but in the era that kind of film or TV is becoming easier to make than film. <laughs> yeah. So, how have you found that kind of a transition? I was going to ask you to com- compare the two, but I think they're both changing so much throughout yeah. your career. It's hard to compare. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, TV's great. It's always been a great format and a great art form, but. Um, Movies to me is just that's the ultimate challenge because to tell a complete story in one and a half yeah. to two hours and some with some people three hours is the hardest thing to do because you have to introduce an audience to a group of characters they've never met before. You know, I'm talking about like doing original ideas yeah. and um, make them care about these people immediately so that they'll follow them through whatever they're going through. And then by the end, wrap it up so perfectly that people feel good and they walk out and it's really, really hard. I mean, that's why so many movies get lukewarm response or we don't like them or they don't do well just because something's missing versus TV where you've got, you know, I mean, TV, why TV is great right now is because TV finally was able to embrace serialization of storytelling yeah. whereas TV used to have to be one-offs all the time so now they kind of get to be really long movies yeah that get chopped up and that's great but I still want to I want a story done in a bite-sized hour and a half to two hours is my goal always I love that as a as a, ch- a challenge as well as an artistic a challenge to go right i know this is i know i've got the chops to make this quality and get this yeah this over. yeah because we're not writing a novel i mean you don't have you know endless space to kind of do stuff and you know i always say like you know the difference between like so uh, writing a novel and writing a screenplay is writing a novel you're just your fingers are flying all day and writing a screenplay you just have your hand on your chin staring at the, at the screen constantly going like okay what's the quickest way i can say this and you're always cutting stuff down and trying to do things shorter and shorter and, which is really hard. It's funny. I have a friend in TV who recently said, you know, movies I think are easier than TV because, you know, just have to write less. And I was kind of like, eh, I think it's actually harder to to write less and in a way that it's going to tell you so much. Yeah. Versus that, that having. going to connect with still. Yeah. Having hours of TV, you know, to, to kind of keep explaining the characters and getting to learn about them. So, but look, I, both art forms are fantastic and, and I love where TV is right now. Do you, do you feel there's something that, 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 a friend of mine, Brett Goldstein, and I discuss a lot that comedy doesn't get the same acclaim as drama, mm. yet it can be as hard, if not harder, to actually pull off well. And it, it came to yeah. mind because 
I was going to obviously you you seem to have great co- connections with your cast and you've worked with um, uh, Melissa McCarthy mm-hmm. over over years and years and it must have been so rewarding and amazing um, to see her recent critical acclaim in, yeah. in a serious role to show what she can do. But then as I was kind of writing that question, I started thinking, well, why is the drama acclaim seen as different? The, yeah. the, the can you forgive me or can you ever forgive me different to Bridesmaids and The Heat and Spy and the acclaim that they, they got as well? Yeah, it's it, it, it vexes us in comedy, I have to say. like every We try not to care about it, but every year around this time at the end of the year, <laughs> yeah. it's all about Oscar and who's a contender and who's great. And you do always kind of sit there feeling like you know the, the stepchild who's not being let into the family. And you're like, hey, hi, we're over here too. You know what it is? Comedy, in order for comedy to be good, it has to look easy. Yeah, It has to feel effortless. And once something feels effortless, people go like, oh, okay, well, there's nothing to that. You know, and drama can be very showy, can be very, you know, a lot going on, very tortured in a weird way. Yeah. You know, where if we had that in comedy... You just go, ugh, that's, it's what we call sweaty in, 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 in the comedy yeah. world. That's just working so hard. And so you're yeah. like, well, that's not fun because it's working too hard. And then, you know, so it, it's this <laughs> – if we do our job right, <laughs> we can't get awards. But you just – I've seen so many comedy people kind of ruined by – desperately wanting an award so they'll then go off and do a movie that has no comedy in it whatsoever that's the most serious humorless thing in the world because they to them we're also damaged from not getting the like, the acclaim that we go like i've got to take everything funny out of this movie because then i will be a serious filmmaker yeah and i go like then but what are you doing you're not even telling like a real story because you know that's not how the world works. I mean, you're never in a situation where somebody doesn't try to make a joke or try to be funny or do something that makes you want to laugh, even if it's completely unintentional. hundred percent. Yeah. So I just, you know, to me, I, I've just long ago, even though bridesmaids got nominated for two Oscars, which is a complete surprise yeah. and wonderful. You just go like, don't, Think about that because that's just going to distract you from your job. Is your job as a filmmaker, especially as a comedy filmmaker, is to entertain an audience. Yeah. Period. And when people come up and say, "Like I've watched Bridesmaids twenty times," they go, "That's my that's my award. I'd yeah. rather have that than an Oscar." How was like Bridesmaids was, you know, an instant classic and such an important film for female led movies in general, mm. comedy regardless. But again, a variety of varied characters, of flawed characters. How was it kind of being the man in that in in, in that race? Um, I I had a rapper called Killer Mike on, and at that point, mm. I was saying how I was feeling uncomfortable at points, shouting online about um, black rights coming from a position of white privilege as mm. such. And he kind of said, "Look, we've there's always been the need for allies. Yeah. You know, the 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 revolutions had." white people breaking down doors as well mm-hmm. alongside and again yeah. there's it's quite right that the women at the forefront of that probably deserve the most praise in a way because they're yeah. they're breaking those boundaries but how was that to be kind of the, that ally i guess it was i loved it i mean it's all i ever wanted to do is tell stories about women i just i just enjoy it and i really relate to women more than men in, in a weird way and so you know i just have to be look i think the best stuff comes when there's parity between men and women yeah. because if it's done right, each 
each side guards the other side from going too far, from going stereotype, from making a mistake, from doing something that's not authentic. And for me, I was, you know, surrounded by women on that because I had my cast. I also had, you know, Annie Mumolo, who was Kristen's right hand, you know, co-writer. She was with me the whole time. Then the woman at the time, Lisa Yadavia, who is now uh, Lisa Goldberg, um, she was Judd's writing assistant. But she, I was like, I want you with me because I really, she was so smart smart and really got stuff and I was like I want you to be my honesty meter even though I'm get, I'm vetting with all the actresses you know <laughs> saying like everybody call me on stuff if it's not right but with her I would she was my one I could turn to go like is this authentic does this feel right to you as a woman that this would be they would be doing this and she was great but you need that you need to have everybody vetting you every woman on the set needs to be vetting what you're doing cuz I'm still a guy I'll I'll pitch a joke and, and they'll go like oh well, we wouldn't really say that and it's like yeah. oh god but then you know what a nightmare if like I was like just say that and then suddenly women are watching this movie going like what the hell you know why is she saying a thing like that a guy would say so yeah, yeah you you do need that and you in just on the, uh, the whole thing of allies I mean that's you know even now as we're working hard to get more women behind the cameras it's you know that they need allies in that way, you know, yeah, just advocating absolutely. and saying like, no, we believe in this and we want to support the, you know, support these people. Yeah. Well, um, I'll wrap things up now. I really appreciate your time. Um, sure. I kind of end by asking what's ahead, but I also want to kind of add that with as a, a, a writer, a director, a producer with so there's so many hats there. How do you balance the choice of what's ahead with family and the real world and things <laughs> like that? So it's yeah, How does that kind of, balance and what's the plan after this well i mean for me it, it's funny i've always known since i was a kid that i wanted to do this i mean you know i wanted, I wanted to be an actor at one point but i knew i wanted to be in showbiz and, and yeah. doing this kind of thing that honestly i i kind of made my life so that i could you know i was never drawn to have kids and when i met my wife who was going to be my wife uh, Lori. You know, we kind of bonded over the fact that neither one of us kind of wanted to have kids. So, because I would always, as a kid, hear like some hero of mine, some star or some, you know, famous for whatever, go like, oh, they're, they're quitting to spend more time with their family. And I was just like, what does that mean? You know, I'm thinking like, so I mean, you, you're going to be home playing games with your kid all day instead of making a movie or being a, a star or something. Yeah. And it sounds very trite, whatever. But for me, it just, it left this impression of like, if you were lucky enough to get to do that, why would you let anything get in the way of it? And so it just worked out great that my wife and I just did, are missing that gene that wants to have kids so we can pick up, you know, I can yeah. suddenly, that's reading Emma's script, go like, I think I'm going to do this it means we're going to have to pick up and move to London like in a couple of weeks. And she's like, great, here we go. You know, we have a dog and he gets boarded and sometimes or he comes along if he, if he can. And, you know, so there, you know, I, I just I don't ever want to not be doing this. I love that. That's perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Pip, thank you so much. You're great. Thank you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Paul Fagan. I can keep the, uh, you know, I'd normally do the longer bit at the end now and mention patreon.com slash Pip and speechdevelopmentrecords.com where we've got our new beanies that have the we may not be for you and that's fine slogan on them. I normally do all that in the beginning. Oh, no, at the end. And I've done it now, but 
briefly. So the end is normally longer, but now it's short. As you will have heard, I also do a podcast called The Pod Bible. So you can for sure check that out. Um, and we do Pod Bible magazine. And we're about to have our, our last one of the year with our cover star. You wait until you see the front cover. Our cover star, Ramesh Ranganathan. Um, the cover looks beautiful. The interview with Ramesh is wonderful as ever. When he answers the question about his, his biggest regret in podcasting, it it involves me. So that's always nice to hear. Cheers, pal. Um, yes, I will see you all next week with the wonderful Neil Gaiman. If this is your first time tuning in, or even if it isn't, if you m- missed the James Mangold bonus episode early in the week, go and listen to it. It's really good. It's one of my f- favourites. And the bonuses are sometimes get missed. But I wanted to get it out on release date for James, um, for his amazing film, Le Mans 66, which, spoiler alert, I think is going to be in my Films of the Year podcast. Um, yes, Thank you for tuning in. I will see you next week. Um, oh, I should mention Kill Ben Like. <laughs> I've plugged everyone else. Kill Ben Like, the film I'm in, is out on Friday um, in in some s- cinemas. Thank you all for supporting that. I'm really proud of it and excited about it. And we've got our last We Are Lizards of the Year at the book club on Saturday the 30th of November. So come down and party with us. We Are Lizards is, of course, if you don't know, my club night. I'll be DJing and maybe having um, a little bit of the bubbly. I'll see you all next week. Ta-ta.